Chapter 20 And God spoke all these words, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an idol in the form of anything in heaven above, or on the earth beneath, or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children for the sin of the fathers to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God, for the Lord will not hold anyone guiltless who misuses his name. Remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, neither you nor your son or daughter, nor your manservant or maidservant, nor your animals, nor the alien within your gates. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea, and all that is in them, but he rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honor your father and your mother, so that you may live long in the land the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife, or his manservant, or maidservant, his ox or donkey, or anything that belongs to your neighbor. A little bit of feedback. Woo! Chapter 20. We need to hear it again, don't we? <laughs> Well, welcome to worship. Once again, it's so good to be with you in the presence of God. Amen. And I believe that the Spirit of God wants to move freely in us today and, and to touch our hearts and to change our minds and allow us to step out of this gathering together differently than we found ourselves. And that's my prayer for us today. And you saw that video, so you know that we're kind of switching gears, if you will. We're, we're flipping the script from, from our, our summer series where we're asking back to the basic questions to jumping into the Ten Commandments. And so I just want to pause for a moment and just ask a question. What comes to mind when you think of the Ten Commandments? What feelings are conjured up in you when you think of and you hear the word Ten Commandments? Our ministry team was kind of reflecting on this this past week, and, and, and the words that came to mind were like rules, stone tablets. There was a really cool one, reverence. And, and then there was a sobering one, unattainable. Unattainable. You know, the reality is, is that if I were to survey us today, I imagine that most of us could not name all Ten Commandments, and I know that every single one of us has probably broken one or more of them at some point in our lives, right? And, and the thing is, we don't like rules, right? We don't like being told what to do, do we? Much less told what, what to not do, right? And that's not just a teenager thing. Amen, teenagers in the room? I haven't outgrown that. Maybe you haven't either, but, you know, they're, 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 we have this pushback, and, and, and we start, start wondering, why did God, I don't know if you've ever asked this question, why did God give these rules? Why these ten? Why not some other ten? Why, why did he give these? Is God just some cosmic killjoy? Is that what God is in giving these rules? Have you ever wondered that? Unattainable? 
if you think of, think of it that way? Or could it be that God has our best at interest? Could it be that, that our stigma, our pushback to the Ten Commandments is that we've always been presented them as a bunch of don'ts, as a bunch of rules, something that God's imposed on us rather than an invitation that God offers to us? Could it, could it be that that's what we push back on? Because let's be true and be honest this morning. We like our freedom, right? I don't know about you, but I like to be free to do whatever I want, Right? We live in the greatest country. At least we, we try to brag about that, right? We, we brag about our freedom in this country. And by the world's standards, if we're honest and real with ourselves, we have tremendous freedoms that so many people across the world are not experiencing, including the freedom to gather and worship this morning. So there is a lot about freedom that we aspire for, that we desire, that sometimes we even demand in our culture and society, right? But are we really free? Are we really free? Sean Gladding wrote a book, and, and I love the title of this book. Get this. Ten Words of Life for an Addicted, Compulsive, Cynical, Divided, and Worn-Out Culture. That sounds about right, doesn't it? He's talking about the Ten Commandments. And, and in it, he talks about the pushback, you know, with our desire and our demand for freedom and, and even calls into question our freedom in this country. And he, he writes this. It says, For all our talk of personal freedoms in the land of the free... There seems to be a savage irony at work. We no longer feel free to walk the streets after dark without fear or let our kids play in the street during the day or let them do research for homework on the Internet for fear of what they will stumble across. Can I get an amen to that? We're in bondage to all kinds and manners of addiction. We're in debt up to our eyeballs in a free market economy. We have freedom of speech, but we are not free from increasingly, if not pervasively, being lied to, abused, verbally, or mocked. That's our reality, isn't it? That's our reality. You see, in many ways, we're not free today, are we? And some of it's of our own doing, some of it's of others imposing on us. But the thing is, is that God didn't impose a set of rules on the Hebrew people. What he was really doing is inviting them into a way of experience a newfound freedom. For you see, when did he give these? to the Hebrew people. He gave them after having delivered them from bondage. They had lived for 400 years under the impressive rule in Egypt. They didn't know how to live other than shackled in slavery. And now they've been set free and they don't know what to do with that newfound freedom. Well, let me make a suggestion to you that those of us that know Jesus, those of us that embrace Jesus, many of us gathered here, we've embraced Jesus and, and there's freedom found in Christ Jesus. Amen? But how often do we find ourselves shackled by our bent back towards self and selfishness and sinfulness? You see, in many ways, we're having to rediscover what it means to live in the freedom of Christ Jesus today. And I think that these ten words, not rules, but words, might offer us something to our society and our culture and our community, our families, our relationships at school, our places of work today that will allow us to experience the relationships we so desperately desire, a sense of connectedness and belongingness and belovedness. You see, Jesus said he didn't come to abolish the law, right? He came to fulfill it. Now, the Hebrew people put some 613 additional rules to the moral code, the 10 words that we find in the 10 commandments, and much of that was for the, the worship in that day and, and, the, and the culture of living, but, but the moral code transcends that. And when Jesus 
talks about not abolishing but fulfilling it, he's asked the question, well, what's the greatest of commandments? And how does he sum it up? Love God and love who? Come on, y'all, wake up this morning. Love God and love who? All right, Ten Commandments, first four, about who? God. Last six, about who? Our neighbors. So maybe there's a connection here between how Christ calls us to love God and love neighbor and what we find God giving the Hebrew people that we could take to heart today. And so I hope that over the next several weeks you'll join me in being opened again to the power, to the life-giving invitation that God has that's found in the Ten Commandments, the Ten Rules but really more the ten words of life. But rather than start with the first one, we're going to start with the tenth one, and we're going to journey our way backwards through the next several weeks. And so join with me back in Exodus chapter 20, where we find God giving these ten words to Moses. And that tenth word is found in verse 17, and that's the one that we want to meditate on today. God says this, You shall not covet your neighbor's house, You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male or female servants, his ox or donkey, or anything that belongs to your neighbor. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Would you pray with me? God, I thank you that you're already at work in us, even if we don't realize it. I thank you for the way that you're in the work in the midst of this community. And as we gather as a ecclesia, as we reflected last week as a church community, God, we gather again today. We need you. We long for you. We desire you. God, we've come in here with all kinds of stuff in our mind and our hearts and baggage that we, we know that we're carrying. And God, you desire to do something about it. In fact, you already have through your son, Jesus Christ. So God, I pray that we would be open to not just meditating on the written word, but we would encounter your living word, your son. So God, may the Holy Spirit move freely in amongst us today and even in spite of me as I meditate and offer what you've put on my heart to share today. God, that it would be pleasing to you, our rock and our redeemer. And the church said, amen, amen. So I'm just going to come out and, and get straight with you this morning. I have never, ever coveted my neighbor's donkey. I wanted to use another word this morning, but I'm staying PG. You know what I'm talking about. But I have never coveted my neighbor's donkey. But I have coveted something of my neighbor's. Maybe you have too. I can remember as a kid, I can distinctly remember as a kid, my parents forewarning me not to go in my neighbor's yard. And it was an older couple that lived next door, and they had a dog named Killer that lived next door. He was all a whopping 3.5 pounds, y'all. But he had a ferocious bark, and he had giant teeth, and he would scare the snot out of you if you came near the fence. And I knew not to go in the neighbor's yard, but there was this bird nest. Y'all think I'm weird, but there was a bird nest at a low branch in the neighbor's yard just past the fence. I wanted that bird nest. I wanted to see what was in it. I wanted it for myself. And, And, you know, I kept the fifth word. I honored my parents by not going in the neighbor's yard, but I took a broomstick and I found a way to go through the chain link fence and kind of push and on the branches, knock that bird nest out and kind of drag it, you know, over the fence. And I was able to get it up and over the fence. I was like, ha, I got what I wanted. And nobody took notice. Not. I didn't realize a two-story window. The neighbor's looking at me the whole time. I'm breaking his branches, breaking his tree. My parents found out about that. 
it didn't go too well for me. I, I won't go there. But, but the, you know, y'all may say that's childish, Andy. You know, you, you've outgrown that. But, but y'all know I haven't outgrown my childhood in many ways. But the truth is, none of us have, right? We, we all. You know, you know, it was on the, on the playground. You always, you coveted what your, what your kids had on the playground. You got upset with, with what someone else had to play with, Right? And, and we don't ever outgrow that as adults. The truth is, is that we've all coveted something that someone else owned, belonged to someone else, if we're honest with ourselves. So, so what is coveting? Well, let me give you a definition this morning. I'm going to put it on the screen. To covet is to desire passionately, to yearn, to possess, to envy. To envy. So let me ask you this morning, what, what is it that you have a twinge of envy for when you hear it or you see it that someone else has? What is it? Is it their car? Is it, you know, I don't know about y'all, but have you ever looked on social media where someone's done this glamorous kitchen redo and you're like, oh, I want that. Yeah, I, I, I remember my wife, she was sharing a, a, a longtime friend of ours that, that, that we've kind of lost connection with. They came back and they had posted their globetrotting vacation this summer. They had to go to the spa to recover from their jet lag. I'd like to be them. I'd like to be one of their kids and go on that trip, right? I mean, can I get an amen? I mean, we can kind of envy one and go, you know, all their travels, right? Yeah, there's all kinds of things. Kids, how many of y'all have a phone in your pocket? How many of them are hand-me-downs? And your friend's got a nice shiny new one at school, and you don't have the newest iPhone or iWatch. There's some grown-up kids in the room that always get the new things, and you know who you are. I'm calling you out. They're hiding. But they know what I'm talking about. You know, we, we, we covet all kinds of things, don't we? But coveting goes beyond just things, doesn't it? Coveting goes to relationships, too, that others have. How many of us covet a friendship that we see someone else having? Kids, you're back in school, and, and all the groups are forming, right? And, and sometimes you feel like you're on the outside looking in, and you want to be a part of that group, and you envy not being a part of that group. But guess what? Us adults feel the same way, don't we? Some of us look at other marriages and we envy that marriage and how that marriage is. There are families that envy not having kids or, or not having uh, as many kids as the family down the street that we have. You see, there's all kinds of things that we envy. There's, 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 there's material things, there's relationships. It may be education and career. It might be the physique or beauty that someone has. It, you might even envy that someone has hair and you don't. I called someone out earlier that was kind of losing their hair. Yeah, you know, right? There's all kinds of things that we envy. There's all kinds of things that we covet that someone else has that we don't have. And I got news for you. It doesn't stop with just something personal, something individual. Because, you know, we all have our individual desires for something that someone else has, but there's a collective aspect to it, too. You you know, one of the, the struggles over the last few years is just the social unrest that's happened and 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 there are some deep justice issues that have to be dealt with and addressed can i get an amen to that but in the wake of those what have we seen we've seen a mob mentality go to the streets and burn up cars tear down businesses destroy property do you know what's at the root of that in many ways it's this collective mindset that they have what we don't and so i'm going to destroy it if i can't have it they can't have it it's it's envy it's coveting you see Coveting is not just individual, but it's collective. And it's not just local, but it's global, right? 
You know, Jesus, when he was asked, he was kind of cornered one day. He said, well, who's my neighbor? Someone was asking, who's my neighbor? And, and the guy was kind of hoping that he would define it as, as a number of people or within close proximity, you know, the neighbor on either left or the right of him. And he gave the story of the Good Samaritan, right? Well, think about our global world today. How many wars, how many wars have started because of one people group in one country wanting what another country or another people group has? How many times have we fought over oil? Y'all? I, even, even in our own history as a country, I, I, even in our own state, and I'm stepping on toes here, but, but I think about like the Trail of Tears back in the 1800s. There was a whole people group, a Cherokee people that were pushed out of their land, of their ancestry. Why? Because another group of people coveted what was underneath the land, perhaps. Spectators for gold, Right? And some of y'all know that we, we have a Ukrainian family in our home. They're, they're 22 years old. They're expecting a baby. Some of y'all have been asking me. I mean, my, my daughter's been asking every day, come back to school, have they had the baby yet? Have they had the baby yet? Only was due last Tuesday, and the baby hadn't come yet. Yeah, shocked, right? Yeah, and the doctor told her just to come when the baby, when she goes into labor. And, and we're like, woo! But, but here's the thing. You look at the war in the Ukraine. Russia's PR machine is saying this is about liberating a people. We sit there with this couple that's in our home, and it's not about liberating people. They're mowing down towns. And they're not just mowing down towns. They're mowing down people. There are tens of thousands of people that have lost their lives in the Ukraine. For what? For the land underneath them so they can put a flag on top of it. You see, coveting is individual. It's collective. It's local. It's also global. And the sobering reality is that we're all susceptible to it, aren't we? We all are. We all are susceptible to it. But there's more to coveting than just the desire for the relationships or desire for the things that someone else has. You see, coveting has a deep, dark side to it. And we've got to acknowledge it. And we've got to get real with ourselves this morning about what coveting can do and have in our lives the impact. Because here's the thing. Coveting kind of sets off this disordered desire for more. Any of y'all want more? I'd like more ice cream. I'm right there, right? You know, it, Sean Gladding in his book, he, he writes this, and I think this is poignant. He says, Americans live with more abundance than at any other time in history. And yet we're increasingly dissatisfied with what we have. Do y'all agree with that? I would. I would. In other words, our abundance fuels our dissatisfaction. It's almost with as more we have, the less satisfied we are. And we begin to compare ourselves to one another. I love the way that C.S. Lewis interweaves our sense of pride with our sense of coveting, our desire for what someone else owns and has He writes this, he said, Pride gets no pleasure out of having something, only out of having more of it than the next person. We say that people are proud of being rich or clever or good-looking, but they're not. They're proud of being richer or cleverer or better-looking than others. Isn't that so true? Isn't Isn't that where we stand today? Isn't that what our social media posts oftentimes are about? is putting a posture up there of what we have in comparison to what someone might have. I mean, we put our trophies out for display, don't we? We do in so many ways. 
Because here's the thing about coveting. Here's the thing about envy. We begin to compare ourselves. We begin to compare how we look, who we're connected with, what our status is, what group we belong to, what things are in our garage, how our house looks, what vacations we take. We compare ourselves, don't we? That's the damning part of envy, in a way, coveting. And it's, it's not a new thing, is it? Going all the way back to the garden. Y'all, y'all remember Adam and Eve, right? They were given in the garden. They were said, eat of every tree in the garden save one. The one in the middle. You know, the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And that slippery servant, that, 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 that devil came in there. And what did, he, what did he get them to do? Start comparing. Comparing the one that they don't have access to to all the others. That they had free access to. And in that comparison, what happened? They partook of the one that wasn't theirs to be had. And it damaged their relationship with God and, and, and ultimately it damaged their relationship with one another. Because comparison is the thief of joy, isn't it? And what did they do in the garden? What do we do today? We point fingers, right? You see, comparison is the thief of joy. It blinds us to what we have, and it robs us of enjoying what we already have. And from the days of Adam and Eve until today, we're still living in that. We're still experiencing that, right? It's a sobering reality, but we've got to acknowledge that. And, 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 and coveting is even far more sinister than just the comparison that we have when we begin to covet what someone else has. Because it does something even further. It sets us up in a place where we begin to look and see people in a different light. We begin to resent them. You know, we go from the place of good for them, genuinely happy for them when they experience or they receive or they have something that brings great joy to their life to resenting them for it, don't we? And that resentment is like a, a, a cancer seed that gets into us and it infects the way we see and how we treat other people. They're no longer neighbors, but they become competitors. I know we like to compete, don't we? At least I do. Anybody else like to compete? Am I the only one? I'm sure there's a lot of competitors here. But here's the thing. Coveting not only robs us of our joy, but it also compromises our relationships. Let me say that again. Coveting not only robs us of our joy, but also compromises our relationships. In fact, dare I say that coveting perhaps is maybe the precipitation of some of the other words, the other guidance that God has in these ten for us. Isn't it envy that often leads us to to steal, to rob, to lie, to, to even murder? We see it in the garden with Adam and Eve, and we see it immediately after the garden, right? Cain and Abel. Y'all know the story, right? Abel brought an offering that was pleasing to God. Cain's not so much, and Cain was envious. And what did he do? He killed his brother. Fast forward, you look at Joseph, and Joseph had ten older brothers at the time. And, and, and Joseph was in that spot that we all want to be, right? The fair-haired child. You know, the one you're not sometimes, right? And his brothers were envious of the way that their father gave partiality towards Joseph. So what did they do? They conspired to kill him, but they came up with a better plan. They can make a buck. So they sold him into slavery. And they decided to lie about what happened to him. They tore his robe, and they put an animal's blood on it and took it back to the father. 
And it devastated their father. Rather than getting his acceptance, they left and lived into the mourning of their father for a son the rest of their life. It devastated and destroyed it. It disrupted the relationships they have. And it doesn't stop there. Y'all know King David, right? A, a man after God's own heart, y'all. And, 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 and let me tell you, he lived a jacked up life too. I mean, he, he had it on easy street, and yet at the same time, he lived a jacked up life. I mean, when you look at his life, he had countless wives and concubines. Y'all tell me how that goes well. It's hard enough for one spouse. Can I get an Amen. Can I get an amen? There we go. Right? But multiple? I mean, come on. But he had countless. But the one that wasn't his, Bathsheba, what did he do? He committed adultery. And then to cover that up, he invited Uriah, the husband, back from battle to hopefully sleep with his wife so he could cover up his misdeed. And, well, that didn't work because Uriah was noble and he was concerned that all the other men were giving their life fighting for the protection of the city, the one where David should actually be out on the battlefield too at that time, but he wasn't. And so what did David do? He sent him back to the battle, and he sent a note to the commander and said, hey, put him in the fiercest fighting and back away a little bit. Basically put a hit squad on Uriah so he could take Bathsheba in as his wife. And even in that, it didn't go well, and he got called out for it. You see, envy's a slippery slope, isn't it? Coveting someone else's belongings and someone else's relationship is a slippery slope. It robs us of our joy, and it gets between us and the relationships we so desperately want. James, you know, the half-brother of Jesus, the one that wishes he could walk on water like Jesus, and he can't. You know what I'm talking about, right? He wrote the, the, New, the New Testament letter of James, and he writes this in James 4. What causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? You desire, but you do not have, so you kill. You covet, but you cannot get what you want, so you quarrel and fight. You do not have because you do not ask. God. And when you do ask, you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives. But you may spend what you get on your own pleasures. You see, I think James is getting at the heart of envy being not only a desire for something, but coupled with a resentment toward those that have it. Because isn't that really what coveting is? Isn't that what really resentment or envy is? It's not only a desire, but it's a resentment toward those that have it. Because desire by itself is not bad, right? I mean, I desire to live in a safe neighborhood for my children's sake. Can I get an amen to that? Many of you are raising kids and grandkids. You want to live in a safe neighborhood, right? We desire to be able to send our kids off to college. We desire to be able to support our parents in old age and the health problems that they might have. You know, there's a lot of things that we desire in life, and those desires by themselves, they're not bad. But it's the object of that desire. It's when what we look at is what someone else has when we begin to desire what they have, when we begin to resent them for it. It's what you might call a disordered desire that gets into our lives. That's, that's what coveting does. Is that we begin to live in a way in which our desires become distorted. Our desires get disordered. And, 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 and I don't know about you, but, but maybe, maybe, maybe I'm the only one in the room, but I think I'm not. How many of us have ever secretly celebrated when someone we have seen that has something that we don't falls from grace? 
Any of y'all relish in someone else falling short that they have something that you've been wanting? And you're like, I told you so, right? Am I the only one? I know I'm not the only one. Y'all don't have to raise your hands, but I know I'm not the only one. See, that's what resentment does. It festers and it robs us of joy and it gets in our relationships. You see, when we lean into our disordered desires, we live dissatisfied lives. Let me say that again. When we lean into our disordered desires, we live dissatisfied lives. And we've all been there. Maybe some of us are there this morning. Maybe some of us are there this morning. So what are we to do? What do, what do we do when we find ourselves capitulating to that itch, that desire for something that someone else has, and it gets to a place where it gets in our way of the relationship we can have with that person? What do we do? How, how do we turn that around? What do we do with that? We well, see, God put this in the negative of don't do this, right? And we, we, we react to that, and we kind of like, no, I don't want to hear that. But there's a do behind the don'ts. I think what he's saying is don't envy but do be content. Don't be jealous, but do live into the joy that I have for you in your life. Because God's an amazing God. God's a God of provision, isn't he? God's a God of grace. You know, I, I, I'm, I marvel every time I have a chance to go on a short-term mission trip. And, and many of y'all have been on short-term mission trips. I've been to a ton of them here in the States, and there's tremendous need here I shared earlier, there's, there's, y'all may not know this, but there are nine people living in tents within a mile and a half of here. Tent city, within a mile and a half of here. There's tremendous need right in our backyard. But, but I'm blown away every time I go overseas. I've been to Venezuela and Brazil and Bolivia and Kenya. I've been fortunate to, to see how God's at work in other parts of the world. And, and, and many of those areas that I went to is what you would consider developing areas. And I don't like that label. I don't like that term. But there's something that's amazing that you find among the people there. Because they have far, far less, materially speaking, than we could ever imagine. And yet they have far, far more joy in their life. Maxine knows what I'm talking about. Amen? There's this deep-seated joy in their life because they're not comparing themselves to someone else. They found that their joy is not found in their stuff, but in their Savior. They find their joy found in the relationship and their identity they can find in Christ Jesus and not in their identity found in the world and the groups and the clubs and the cliques that they could belong to. They learn something that we, perhaps, in the West need to relearn. And that's how to be content. How to be content. You know, Paul, crusty old Paul, Apostle Paul. You know, his name was Saul. And and, and Saul was, I mean, he's a who's who. He was a scholar. He knew the law. He could name the ten. I can't necessarily name the ten, rattle them off like that. But he could. He could rattle them probably frontwards and backwards and tell you which number it is if you pulled a card out of the hat. I mean, he just, that's just the way Paul was. He knew it. But he lived by the law and not by the Spirit. He lived that way, and it, it had drastic implications for his life and how he reacted. He sat there and approved the murder of the first Christian in Scripture, Stephen. But something changed in Paul. Oh, something changed in Paul when he came to encounter Jesus Christ. 
you know, he was blinded by that light. Blinded by the light. She's telling me to stop. I'll stop. Not in the phrase team for a reason, right? They drug me in the choir, but they're not going to let me up there, right? Can I get an amen, Stephen? But something was changed in Paul. He came to encounter the love of God, the grace of God, that complements the truth of God, that covers our shortcomings, that forgives us of our failures, even when we covet. He encountered the love of God through his relationship with Jesus Christ there on that road to Damascus. He was forever changed. And this Paul, he, he would be lied about. He would be falsely accused. He'd be beaten. He'd be imprisoned in and out. And, and, and one time when he was in prison, he wrote this to the church in Philippi. And it's probably perhaps one of my favorite passages in all of the book of Philippians, the letter there. He writes this in Philippians 4.11. It says, I have learned to be content whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I've learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. I can do all of this through him who strengthens me. You see, his deepest longing, his deepest need was met in his relationship with Jesus Christ. God's a God of provision, y'all. Those Hebrew people were shackled in slavery for centuries, and they find themselves in a newfound freedom. And guess what? They needed food, just like you and me. And what happened? Manna from heaven fell. Quail fell. Moses was instructed to strike the rock, and water was provided. God's a God of provision. God knows what we need. And he will provide if we lean in and, and lean in and trust in him. And, and our greatest needs found in Christ Jesus. Paul knew that. And he came to a place where his circumstances didn't define his happiness. His situation didn't define whether he was in a place of want or not as far as envying what someone else had that he at that time didn't have. He found a deeper joy. He found a deeper satisfaction. He found a deeper po- peace. He found how to be content in all circumstances. And the truth is, is we can too. The truth is we can too. So how do we make that transition? How do we make that transition from a a posture of going down the fork in the road of envy to that path that God's inviting us to, a path of contentment? How do we do that? Well, I think it starts with becoming aware of what we do have, being grateful for what we have. In fact, let me ask you this. Imagine if you woke up tomorrow and you only had the things that you gave thanks for, what would you have? Who would be sitting beside you? Think about that for a moment. If you only had what you gave thanks for when you woke up tomorrow, what would you have and who would be beside you? You see... Learning to become content begins with taking notice of what you do have, the blessings that God's placed in your life. Not what you don't have, but what you do have. Sometimes we lose sight of that. So let me leave you with three practical things that I want to challenge you with this week as as we move from envy to contentment. That's the tenth word. Not from this, but to this. And the first thing is to make a a, a gratitude list. You, You may have gotten one of these on the way in. If you didn't, pick one up on the way out. 
Put it on your refrigerator. Put it in your Bible. Put it in your journal. Put it in your purse. Wherever it is, you're going to see it daily. And the challenge is, is, and for those of you online, you don't have one of these, but you can make one easy enough. But starting today and going through next Saturday, take time. Write the, the first three to five things that come to your mind today that you're thankful for. And when you wake up tomorrow, write the next three to five things. Not the same things. And when you wake up Tuesday, don't write what you wrote Sunday and Monday, but write the new things God puts on your heart and your mind that day. And as you do it each day, give thanks to God for what you do have. Because the thing is, is by Saturday, you're going to have 20 to 30 things that maybe you've lost sight of that God's blessed you with in your life. Maybe it's a parent's home to find shelter in. Maybe it's a friend to confide in. Maybe it's a car that actually cranks. It may not look pretty, but it cranks and it gets you there. Right? Maybe it's someone that's going to come that, that just constantly checks in on you, that you know drives you nuts, but the fact is, is they take notice when you're not there and they call you and they check in on you. You get gratitude for that. What are you thankful for? What are you thankful for? The second thing is this, is remove or reduce those things that lead you to want to envy what someone else has. You, you know, there are things, there's, there's magazine subscriptions, there's news fees, there's social media fees. I mean, my gosh, when you're on social media, that thing I was talking about with kitchens and vacations, I mean, they're trophies that we see others have and we should be happy for them. But if we're honest, sometimes we're like, man, I want that too, <laughs> right? Maybe we, need to, maybe we need to fast from some of that. Maybe we need to unsubscribe from some of those magazines or things that, that provoke that sense of envy in us. Maybe we need to step away from those things that tempt us as another step toward contentment, right? And the last thing is this. Join a small group. There's a number of groups forming, that, and, and a few of them are actually going to be doing this book. And I, This book's fantastic. It's a great dialogue. Um, you know, our Sunday school hour, y'all may not know this, but at 10 o'clock, we're moving toward an intentional community hour. There's coffee out front for everyone. Our kids are stretching into the early hour so that parents have a place to connect at 10 o'clock. Our Sunday school class for adults meets then, and our teens meet with Tammy at 10. It's a place for us to intentionally connect and be in community. Because here's the thing. God didn't give these 10 words to a person. He gave these 10 words to a community. Because we're intended not to go through life alone. We're not intended to go through life alone. And if there's anything that I've learned over the last three years... It's how fractured and how broken and how polarizing we have become as a society and as a community, even in a body of faith. It's been heartbreaking. It's impacted marriages. It's impacted homes. It's impacted the friendships our teens have in school. Deep fractures in the continuity of community. God gave the ten words to a group of people that didn't know what it was like to live into a newfound freedom. So they could thrive. Together. Together. And I believe that God wants that for you and me today too. That's what put it on my heart and Anne's heart. And Anne's preaching at one of our sister churches today. So you may be wondering where she is. She's at Sardis Methodist Church, the oldest church 
in North Georgia. It's in Buckhead. She's preaching for another pastor friend of ours there. This conversation of reflecting on the ten words was put on our hearts because of the condition, the situation we find ourselves in community and in culture today. We're better together, y'all. That's what brought two churches together three years ago, almost four. It's beautiful. It's amazing. It's crazy. It's been wild. It's been upside down. It's been hard. God wants, God wants us to thrive in our marriages, in our families, in our schools, in our neighborhoods, as a community of faith. And I believe that God wants us to shine his light. What is our, what is our mission? Share in what? Live with? For the sake of others. When we begin to live in community the way that God designed, desires, and empowers us to through a relationship with Jesus Christ, watch out, Woodstock. Watch out, Woodstock. Watch out, world. Because we'll be living the way that God designed, desired, and equips us to. That's my desire for us. Let's start connecting. Let's start living Let's have discussions, not debates. Let's get real. And let's grow into these 10 words of life. Amen? Amen. Amen. Would you pray with me? Almighty God, I thank you. Gosh, I thank you. I thank you for your word. Even a word from the Old Testament that some, and at times all of us may think is outdated or or outmoded or, or so B.C. before Jesus, that is. And yet Jesus came to fulfill the law a way of love love is the fulfillment of the law and these 10 words of life is about loving the other as much as we love ourselves and ultimately being in love with god our creator god if we're honest we have all walked in here with wounds and scars where others have robbed us of something in our life and in our relationships. They have hurt us in deep ways. And if we're honest, we too have scarred others because we too have failed not to walk fully in the way of love, of loving God and loving neighbor. But God, but you, but you, through your son Jesus Christ, what you did on the cross, through an empty grave, Lord, you defeated sin, you defeated death, and you desire to do it in us. And so God, do it again with us today. Break the chains of bondage of sin and selfishness in us. Break our sense of coveting what others have. Help us to step into the joy of being in relationship and finding our identity in you and in you alone. And in that, may we marvel at how you begin to weave a tapestry of others into our life and into our relationship and in our community. God, empower us as a body of faith here, an ecclesia, a gathering of the church, to be your light to live and to love in a way that draws others into your presence, into a relationship with you for your glory, not ours. That's my desire. May it be so for us as a community of faith. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, and the church said, Amen. Amen.